Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord my God and my Redeemer. Amen. This evening I want to take all of you on a little journey to start off with. It's a journey back in time to a, a wonderful place when the world was easy and we knew what was good and what wasn't good and we knew for a fact that The Matrix was a great movie. You guys remember? This was before they came out with the second one and then the third one, and we forgot all about how good the first one, the promise that it had. Think back to what a great movie the original Matrix was. Do you remember the trailer? I think they had a couple different trailers, didn't they? There was one that was just like an all-black screen that just said, what is The Matrix? And then there's another one that, that had a little bit more, and we meet... Neo, and it tells us in the trailer that all the things that we take for granted about life, going to work, paying bills, going to parties, are simply this, this covering, this veneer for the reality of slavery that's underneath. And we meet Neo, and he, he goes to meet this mysterious man named Morpheus, who asks Neo to take a step of faith, right? To trust that perhaps there is more to his life than meets the eye. So he says to Neo, have you ever had a dream so real, Neo? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? And of course, Neo is played by one of the most formidable actors of our time, <laughs> who has that great mix of uh, incredulity and just like total confusion. What is the matrix, he says. Morpheus responds, it's the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. You are a slave born into a prison. In St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the text that we read follows right on the heels of Paul giving this stunning description of the grand vistas of God's power on display in Christ's death and resurrection. 
he stumbles over himself almost, telling of this deep, deep mystery that for him has reoriented his entire life and actually reoriented his entire cosmology. He now sees Christ as above all things because of what he's done on the cross. That the wisdom of God is being revealed as a mystery. It's choosing from eternity past that this would be God's mission in the world. That he would save his people in the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And that his power would never be seen so fully on display as it was seen in Christ's death and resurrection. And in our text this evening, Paul is asking the Ephesians, and he's asking us to look to look back at a grim situation, to look around at a great salvation, and to look ahead toward a growing seed. And the first thing that they have to do is look back to this grim situation. He tells them a very similar thing to what Morpheus told Neo. All of these things that you think make up your life, that give you meaning, are nothing more than death. Your entire idea of freedom is not only an apparition, It's actually keeping you in a prison. Paul is asking this little Christian community to look back with clear eyes to what their life was really like before it collided with Christ, with the gospel of his death and resurrection. After all, dead people don't know much, but above all, they don't know that they're dead. So Paul has to remind them. Now we have to take a little bit of time with this section of the passage because Paul is essentially condensing what he does in four chapters in Romans into a couple verses here in Ephesians. And so all of his words are extremely loaded with meaning. He's summing up the entirety of the the sort of center of the Christian message in a couple short verses. So when he tells the Ephesians that they were dead in their transgressions and sins, he's pointing to the entire Gentile race all non-Jews, all those who remained outside of the promise of Abraham, outside the ritual of the temple and the sacrificial system and the law of Moses. And he's using these two words very specifically. Sometimes transgressions is translated trespasses. So that word we're kind of already familiar with, right? It means that you're actively going against a boundary, going to a place you're not supposed to go. It's rebellion. You're choosing it willfully. And Paul is telling the Ephesians, that they have chosen to rebel against God, even if they never thought that they had. He's telling them the truth. They really had. But then, if that's maybe a little too tough for us to handle, maybe we don't like to think of ourselves as rebels, he doesn't let us off the hook. Because the other word for sin means to miss the mark. It's like an archer failing to hit the target. Sure, you're trying, but you still failed. You still couldn't live up to what the law requires. The Gentiles have completely failed to be what God demands that they be just by knowledge of him in creation. Our translators here have tried to help us understand Paul's way of thinking. Sometimes this is translated as uh, you were dead in your sins in which you used to live. But literally what he's saying is you were dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to walk. And this is an ancient way of understanding how a person goes about living their life. Those of you that have been here before, you've you've probably heard me quote the beginning of the Didache, the the first teaching of the apostles. It starts by saying there are two paths. One leads to death, one leads to life. To walk is to be pointed in a particular direction. 
right? It's, it's to, to choose actively to follow certain things. And he's saying that their entire walk, their entire enterprise was an active movement toward death. But it's more than just rebellion and failure. Paul identifies in this passage a trifecta of bondage and death that we actually saw in our opening prayer, the collect for today, stated succinctly. It's from one of John's epistles as the world, the flesh, and the devil. In using these categories, uh, I'm about to essentially offend everybody here, okay? So buckle up. When you start to sweat, just remember the person next to you probably started sweating a couple minutes before you did. So, the world. Some of us are offended by the talk of the world being the problem. He's not referring to people groups. He's not referring to nationalities or ethnic diversity. He's not talking about the physical earth. He is talking about the philosophical and economic systems that make up human life on earth. And he's essentially saying that systems of empire are dehumanizing systems. They're not neutral. They're actually broken. Now, if you are a good Portlander, this one's actually pretty easy, right? I mean, we, we get this as people in Portland, don't we? We look around from factory farms to corporate greed to sex trafficking. It's easy to see that the systems that are kept in place by the powerful all too often exploit the weak. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. If you've grown up kind of in the conservative wing of the church, though, this one's a little bit harder to grasp. We're really comfortable dealing with personal responsibility. Don't worry, we'll get there. <laughs> I said I'm going to offend everybody. We're comfortable with personal responsibility, but we have trouble really thinking about the fact that systems can actually be sinful. And I don't want you to rush past what Paul is saying here. It might sting, and I think the sting, if we're honest, is because many of us like to flirt a little too much with some of these systems, don't we? We're a little too complicit in our purchasing power with the oppression of the poor. We just sort of push it out of our mind. Some of us are too complicit in failing to care for the resources of the earth. And what Paul wants us to see is that systemic evil is a real thing, and it's something that all of us have actually been contributing to and enslaved to. The second one that he hits on is the devil. And, and this one, it doesn't matter if you're a conservative Christian or a progressive Portlander. This one's just equally weird for all of us. When Paul talks about the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit at work in the children of disobedience, he's talking about Satan. And for enlightened 21st century people like us, this sort of seems like fiction, right? Like fairy tales, like a really good show on Netflix. I mean, we've grown past believing in monsters hidden under the bed, aren't we? Isn't this just one more example of how archaic the Bible is? Ancient people saw spirits behind every rock in every breeze, and now, I mean, we know better. We've got Freud. I would suggest to you that that sort of intellectual snobbery is held onto only at great cost. And I'm not going to try to talk you out of it. I would just ask you to consider the result of our materialistic, scientific method-based culture. From the development of the bomb, the rising rates of suicide and mass murder in cultures where spirits are seen as nothing more than 
sort of psychological maladies, maybe we haven't exactly made progress like we thought. For Paul, as for other scriptural writers, a personal devil was nothing to gloss over. It was nothing to snicker about. This was a real spiritual being that rules over human life in ways that we fail to recognize. As it's been said in an actual great movie, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist, right? Now, the third element of this trifecta that Paul sets up for us is one that I think folks that identify more on the progressive end are going to have a hard time wrestling with, and that's the flesh. To be clear, Paul is not telling us that desire is wrong. Desire for food or sex or sleep, all of those are good things. They're designed by God. They're built in. But he's telling us that there's something internal to each of us that is deeply broken, that has rerouted those desires in a way that is actually killing us and imprisoning us. There's a self-centeredness in us that causes us to walk in rebellion toward God because each of us wants to be the king of our own lives. And it's not just Gentiles. Paul hints that even us Jews, he says, have been enslaved by our own rebellion. It's a pretty grim situation. Whether or not you can agree that there's a personal devil or that personal responsibility is a good thing or that there's somehow some big evil scheme in the systems of the world, at least one of those for you is probably true. So I would grant, I would ask that you would grant to Paul that they're all true. What if he's right? If he's right, then that means there's no such thing as neutral. Our own passions, our own desires are so misguided, so rebellious that given the chance, we will kill our way to the top if we have to. But it's not just that. The world itself is set up in a way that enslaves us. Whether we're the ones working in a sweatshop actually enslaved or we're the ones that are so addicted to greed and materialism that we're oppressing the poor and enslaved to our own desires, it doesn't matter. We're all slaves to the system. Economic and social injustice dehumanizes victims and perpetrators alike. And even in moments when we feel like our desires are our own to control and our destiny is our own to manage, we are met time and again with a stone wall. Right? We don't change based on new information. Our desires own us, not the other way around. And beyond even just impersonal systems of evil designed to enslave us, there is this personal, powerful being bent on our destruction, bent, bent on dragging us down into death. And he's done such a good job of it that we're laughing like we're on a carnival ride. And as if this were not enough, Paul tells us that because of this enslavement, because of this devil duping us into death, because of our own rebellion, our insistence on sitting on the throne of our own hearts, we are actually deserving of wrath. Uh-oh. The W word. Now I've lost everybody, right? Nobody wants to talk about wrath. Because we have this conception of God, I think, that is too much like us. We think of God's wrath usually in two ways. Either it's this eternally existent thing out there, and if you're stupid enough to bump into it, watch out but it's just always there. Or we think of God as like an out-of-control parent. 
If he's had a really bad day at the office, look out. Better make sure the toys are put away. Better be quiet or he's going to lose it. But when scripture talks about God's wrath, it's not an impersonal force just burning out there waiting for us to pass through it like a furnace. Nor is it something that flares up when God's having a really, really bad day. God's wrath is his hostility toward evil. It's hostility toward evil. We have to understand that God is relational, so his wrath doesn't just exist out there in a vacuum. It's a response to evil, and it's an unwillingness to compromise with evil. Think of it this way. God is the surgeon, and the evil is cancer. And what Paul is telling us is that we are just swimming in cancer. It's in the air that we breathe. It's coursing through our veins. It is sunk down into our bones And the king of cancer himself is feeding it to us by the spoonful. And as difficult as the idea of wrath may be, all of us believe that cancer isn't something that you just sort of like negotiate with and cordon off. No, you get rid of all of it. You can't compromise with it. You have to cut it all out, blast it to death, obliterate it. All of this... And Paul has not yet gotten to the main subject and verb in the first sentence. This has been one long sentence, and he's writing it in a way that we should be standing here with our mouths wide open, almost shocked at what a grim situation we were snatched from. Aghast at our own death, and the punishment that we deserve. And then he turns the corner and says, but God. But God acts. But God intervenes. But God goes about a grace-filled salvation that is so overwhelming that Paul can barely spit it out. You were dead. No hope. Not even a glimmer. Just the darkness and silence of a grave. But God made you alive. And here Paul gives us one of the most incredible descriptions of salvation. The gospel story at the very pinprick center is Jesus dying and rising again. And in other letters to early churches, Paul will make explicit that we are united with Christ in his death. But here he's already told us that we're dead. So now he just moves right on to tell us that when God rose Jesus from the dead, he rose us too. That when he seated Jesus in the heavenly realms, he sat us too. This is not hyperbole. It's not a literary device that Paul is using to get us to understand that the power of God at work in us is pretty similar to the power that was at work in Jesus. That's not what it is. This is literal, actual, real, perfect tense. It happened. God has so united you with Christ in faith and baptism that when his resurrection happened, your resurrection was secured. When his session, his seating His finalization, realization, culmination, and vindication happened there in the presence of the triune God. You have been seated, vindicated, realized. You're there. It's already happened. Can you even believe the reversal? The boot of the world was on our necks. The bullet of sin had pierced our skulls. Satan was holding a smoking gun, and while we were dead in rebellion against God, he made us alive. 
in the death and resurrection of Christ. Why? Why would he do that? I mean, you don't have to look much past your own family history or your personal history, much less world history, to realize that betting on humanity ever getting it is a losing bet. Why would he do this? Paul's only answer is because he's rich in mercy. He's got storehouses as big as this building, infinitely covering a vast array, just filled with the stuff. He's rich in mercy. But it's not mercy that's just sitting there somehow impersonal. It's mercy directed right at you. It's mercy for you. It's because of his great love for you. You have been rescued by grace, made alive, and seated above all of those powers that tried to enslave you. And it's only because he loves you. That's it. We deserve to be obliterated, and instead he came and died in our place. And with power and mystery as ancient as time itself, he made us alive. And he did it because he loves us. You have been rescued by grace through faith, and none of it, not the rescuing, not the faith, none of it is from yourself. It is just God's gift. You have done nothing to bring this about. It is only his love, the great love with which he has loved us. He did this all because he loves us, but it's actually for a purpose. Paul tells you your purpose in this passage. Don't look past it. In the coming ages, which sometimes refers to the, 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 the next age, the eschaton, the, the end times when all things are fulfilled. In this sense that Paul uses it, it, it's more like the way that the ocean just keeps crashing on the beach. Just over and over and over. It, it, it's this age spilling out into the next, into eternity, forever and ever and ever. Through the rest of time, God is putting on display a grace so rich a kindness so deep that it cannot be compared to, indeed it cannot be expressed in any other way than in the way that he has rescued us, made us alive, and sat us in the heavenly realm in Christ. Do you see what he's getting at? You are the story. You are icons of the gospel. Paul uses the word handiwork. It's like God is one of these hipster Portland artist who's just like putting everything he's got into this one piece and it's you to display his glory that's how the story gets told it's told in us God's handiwork his own creation made by his hands in Jesus Christ to do good works you are now if you are in Christ situated in a new creation in the middle of the remaking of all things that is taking place in Christ. And just like in the psalm that we read, you are like a fruit tree that has been made so absolutely alive, so undeniably alive, so completely alive that the only thing you can do is bear fruit. Because that's what alive fruit trees do. We become in our good works 
in our spiritual fruit the material structure for the invisibilities of God's grace in the world. How could you not tell that story? If even a part of you believes that you have really been rescued from a death so dire to a salvation so incredible, how could you not tell that story? Not just with your mouth, but with your entire life. How could we be anything other than the audio system through which the message of God's grace is blasted throughout this city and this world? If we have been brought from a death like that to a life like this by a love like God's, what else could we be made for? Even if it hurts, and it will. Even if there's suffering, and there is. Even if loving our neighbors takes time, and loving our spouse takes effort, and loving our enemies takes dying, what else could we possibly do? God has purposed beforehand that we should be in Christ and in so being that we should not simply do these good works, but here's the bookend, that we should walk in them. You're no longer walking down toward the city of death. You're walking toward the city of God. The reversal is complete. We used to walk in rebellion and death, and now we walk in life, in love as new creation, working the love of God down into the soil of our city. And in our working, we are displays of his grace, of the greatness of his love for us. But don't rush past the action. God made you alive and seated you so that you would get up and go on a journey. That's what we're doing here. We come into this place to get food for our journey. In a moment, we will come to the table and we will feast. And then we will be called to get out of here and to go walk in good works as icons of God's story in the world. Take a few moments of silence. Ask the Spirit to come if you don't believe that you were dead or that you are dead, ask the Spirit to show you. If you don't believe that in your baptism and faith that you have been united with Christ and made alive in him and seated in the heavenly realms with him, ask the Spirit that when you come to this altar, he will feed you. He will feed your faith. In silence now, ask the Spirit to come and make you alive.